You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. All right. Quick show of hands, those of you both in-house and online. How many of you uh, would consider yourself a multitasker? Raise your hand. Okay, just about a lot of you. Now, uh, we're going to see if you're lying because your spouse is sitting next to you if you're married. Uh, Raise your hand if you think you're good at multitasking. Much fewer hands here in the house. (laughs) Um, You want to know who's really good at multitasking? Dads. Dads, when you go home today, seriously, you have homework for today. When you go home today, I want you to do a quick search of multitasking dads because you'll see pictures like this. Video games, feeding babies, which uh, a weird consequence is then your children start adopting this behavior, so then this happens. And admittedly, it ends up going a little bit too far. Human beings love to multitask. And on some level, I think Jesus can appreciate that. I think Jesus can get down with that. Because whenever I read scripture, whenever I read the stories of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus seems to always be multitasking, always doing several different things at once. Sometimes we're aware of it and sometimes we're not. In fact, scholars have found that when they've observed Jesus' life, when they've observed his ministry, they've found that you could actually categorize the three tasks, the three main tasks that Jesus seemed to be most obsessed with. And they're these, that Jesus, while he was here on earth, uh, sought to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. Every single one of Jesus' tasks could be lumped in one of those three categories. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Let's do them in sort of inverse order. Jesus does kingly tasks. He conquers things like sin and death. He inaugurates an entirely new kingdom order, an entirely different social order that forces you and I to revisit how we treat one another and how we organize the world. He promises that one day he will come and he'll reign forever and ever. Jesus is also our priest. He performs a lot of priestly tasks. He uh, cleanses people. He forgives people. He heals people. Every interaction, he's drawing people closer and closer and closer to God. And then thirdly, Jesus is also our prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is nothing but a a truth teller. Think about all the times that Jesus' ministry went through his teaching or his preaching or in his sermons. He said something that either A, we did not know, or B, he said something that reformed something we assumed we knew. Which brings us to our sermon series that we're embarking upon here at the beginning of 2022. You see, uh, friends, for the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're actually going to hone in on that last role, the role, the task of prophet. Because you see, friends, over the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus sought to reform a lot of different areas of our life and our faith. Jesus sought to reform, correct, update a lot of the obsolete and antiquated ways in which we thought of ourselves, we thought of God, we thought of the world around us, we thought of other people. 
all so that we could see him and see the kingdom more clearly. And so we're going to take that task up. We're going to take up that conversation and revisit all these reforms that Jesus made during his ministry primarily for two reasons. Primarily for two reasons. One is because if you haven't found this to be true in your own life yet or not, you will. What you believe has direct implications for how you live. I'll say that again. What you believe about everything, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about your job, what you believe about other people, what you believe in every sphere of life, it has direct implications for the way in which you live. This matters for our practical everyday lives. And secondly, the other reason why we're revisiting all these reformations that Jesus sought to bring is because a lot of them didn't take. <laughs> Here we are 2,000 years later after Jesus' ministry, and still in the church and in many expressions of Christianity today, we find ourselves practicing or we find other Christians practicing the very things Jesus sought to correct, Jesus sought to reform, Jesus sought to update. If you missed worship last week, you missed a really, really powerful opening example of this in Pastor Amanda's sermon on law versus gospel. Amanda explained for us that one of the chief things that Jesus came to correct was all these religious folks, their obsession with rules rather than the relationship. That seems to be a repetitive theme throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is obsessed with the relationship between you and him. Whereas organized religion is obsessed with the rules, the laws. Who gets in, who gets to stay out, who gets to participate, who doesn't, who's in, who's, who's right, who's wrong, etc., etc., etc. Today we're going to build off that conversation. This is really probably part two of last week's sermon, because today what we're going to do is we're going to see that Jesus not only had reformations on all of the man-made rules that you find and you experience and encounter in many churches today, but Jesus even goes a step further. Jesus goes a step further during his ministry and reforms not only our understanding of laws and rules and religious guidelines and stuff like that, Jesus goes a step further to reform how we read scripture altogether. Jesus reforms how we approach and how we relate with the Bible altogether. How so? Let's find out. So, if you have your Bibles, if you're here in the house and you have your Bibles, your smart devices, you want to return back to John chapter 5, go ahead and do that now. Go ahead and whip those out and have those so you can uh, be following along if you're worshiping online. Go ahead and do so so you have those handy. Here in John chapter 5, uh, just to give you a little bit of context as to what was happening uh, in the uh, uh, particular selection that Lori just read, is uh, Jesus was in the process of making people nervous. Okay? That's what Jesus does. Jesus, through the things that he did, through the things that he said, he always made particularly religious people nervous. Why? Because he was often saying things that was correcting what they had been preaching to be true. You heard Jesus do this all the time. Jesus would say things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he's reforming, updating what they see and what, how they imagine, what they believe to be true about God. In fact, uh, here in this passage you see on your screen, uh, he just got done getting harassed by Jewish leaders because he broke the Sabbath. Those of you who are new to church, Sabbath is just a fancy pants word for it's the rest day. It's the day of the week where Jewish uh, followers, Jewish believers used to take the day off. They used to not work. They used to not do anything that could be considered busy. And Jesus 
wouldn't quit piddling about. He was always doing stuff and healing people and cleansing people and raising people and teaching and doing all these things to help people because, again, Jesus is obsessed with the relationship while organized religion seems to always be obsessed with the rules. Jesus says about the Sabbath, he says, you weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. It's a completely different way of thinking. But then he goes a step further. Then he goes a step further. So these Jewish leaders are still around. They're still following around. They're pestering him and harassing him. And so he goes a step further and he says, listen, these reforms that I'm talking about, these changes in the ways in which you're going to believe and think, they not only apply to all the laws, all the rules that you think make you right with me, but they also apply to the way in which you read the scriptures altogether. And this is where he says this. So in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says this. He says, you search just like the law, just like all those rules and those laws and those man-made things, just like that. You search the scriptures too because you think they give you eternal life. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying you are treating the scriptures as the means by which you are made right with God. It's not me. You're going to the book. You're going to the scriptures because you think they make you right with me. That You, you, you tend to sort of believe that if you can just know them and read them enough and believe them enough and memorize enough of them and, and if I can just apply enough of them to my life, then God will accept me. In essence, what Jesus is doing here is he's warning not only his audience there in the first century, but us today, of something we might call biblical idolatry. That it's possible, that it's actually possible to be found guilty of worshiping the Bible over God, that the people here in this moment had created a new trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. That's who we're worshiping. That's who we're following. Not a person. It's paper. That's what we're after. And I don't even have to tell many of you this. That this reformation that Jesus sought to bring to the way in which we read and interpret Scripture, it didn't take in a whole bunch of churches that are in existence today. When you step into a lot of churches today, they not only uh, will sort of preach this sort of relationship with the Bible, they will explicitly state it on websites, on mission statements, you name it. In fact, if you go uh, to some churches, they will say, we believe in the doctrine of inerrancy. When it comes to the Bible, the doctrine of inerrancy, that's just fancy seminary talk for this. It is the belief that the Bible is without errors, typos, discrepancies, or contradictions. In a word, it's perfect. So if it's perfect, we need to literally read it, literally apply it every day of our lives. Now, I want to be sensitive here. I want to be sensitive here because some of us, uh, we grew up in these traditions. We grew up in churches like this. We grew up in churches who preached that. And so uh, I did. I did. I shared this during the first service, that this was my experience. My experience when I first came. So I didn't grow up in faith, but then I came to faith later on, and then I belonged to a church that preached this sort of relationship with the Bible. And I held that relationship with the Bible that way for a really, 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 really long time. And then something happened. And then something happened. 
I started to be confronted with the particular passages of Scripture that, uh, well, in a word, made a sort of crisis of faith if I was going to hold on to the doctrine of inerrancy. So what I found in my own experience is, number one, the problem with holding to this type of view of Scripture, this type of relationship with the Bible, my first issue that I ran into is, number one, it's actually not true to say the Bible doesn't have any contradictions or discrepancies. It's just, fact, it's just like factually not true. If you don't believe me, check this out. There's a multitude of examples of this. These are just a small sampling. So check this out. Here's the first one. So the first one is, uh, in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a particular story that talks about uh, the king Joachim of uh, Jerusalem. And two particular passages of scripture say that he was different ages when he became king. 2 Kings 24 says he was 18. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 says he was 8. My daughter's about to be 8, so hopefully it was 18. Anyway, that's just one example. That's one example. Here's another one. Another one shows up also in the Old Testament uh, when it talks about a story where God sent Gad to threaten David uh, with many years of famine. Same exact story, but two different accounts of the story. 2 Samuel chapter 24 says it was a seven-year famine. 1 Chronicles chapter 21 says it was a three-year famine. Now, you're sitting there like, well, Kyle, these are just numbers. Like, my wife and I argue all the time about when something happened five years ago. No, it was 17 years ago, whatever. But there's also some subsequent sort of, there's some substantive, rather, moments where this happens, where discrepancies occur. Check this one out. So this particular passage in 2 Samuel chapter 24 says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David, so this is God, God incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So God is the one inciting the census in 2 Samuel chapter 24. But if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, I believe, yep, it says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. So who is it? These are just factual examples of discrepancies. So in my own relationship with the Bible, I love Jesus. I'm, I've committed my life to follow Jesus. By this time in my life, I had been, I'd given my life to go into full-time ministry, and so I'm watching these examples sort of pile up, and I'm like, holy cow, uh, I'm, it's, I've been untrue. Like, or I've, been, I've been sort of, this is not true to say there's no discrepancies, no errors, no typos. And then the second issue, the second crisis happened not only when I started encountering discrepancies in the Bible, but when I started encountering passages of Scripture that ran directly into the face of who Jesus was and what Jesus preached. Passages like this. Passages that say that um, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 20, what you're supposed to do with adulterers is punish them by death. It's black and white. That's what you do with them. But in John chapter 8, Jesus is presented with an opportunity. He's presented with a woman who's been caught in adultery. And what does he do? He shows her mercy. Another example uh, happens uh, a little bit later. So uh, this is a particular passage on rebellious children. So parents, listen up. You can use this one later. Uh, so Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21 says, if you've got a disobedient child who ain't listening and they ain't, you know, they ain't falling in line, sounds a bit extreme, but... Deuteronomy chapter 21. But when Jesus is presented with that same opportunity, all those children run away from their parents and they want to go and be with Jesus. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, oh, it's so good to see you, but you disobeyed your parents. So, hmm. No. What does he do? He welcomes them, loves them, goes a step further and says, y'all, listen up. The kingdom of God is theirs. 
One more. The Sabbath is another example that we already talked about earlier. But again, friends, the reason why they were harassing Jesus so much earlier in John chapter 5 is because the punishment for breaking the Sabbath was death. And over and over and over again, Jesus seems to be breaking it to love and care for people. To love and serve people. It's the relationship, not the rule. And so for me, I don't know where you are. I don't know where every single person in this room is or who's listening online. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Bible. But what I found for me, this is just Kyle speaking, what I found is that when I was holding to a relationship with this book, that it was perfect, that there's no errors, there's no mistakes, there's no discrepancies, it's perfect, I'm going to follow it literally, interpret it literally, every occasion, all the time, what I found is if I was going to hold on to that type of relationship with the Bible, and I was starting to be called out by some of my friends, unbelieving people in my life who were like, yo, like, what do you do with all these passages? What do you do with all these stories? What I was finding was I had two options. I had two choices. If I was going to hold to that type of relationship with the Bible, A, I had to start getting a lot better about lying about it. I had to get a lot better about hiding those particular passages. And in the process, lose my integrity. Which was not only harmful, not only would have been harmful to myself, but it would have been completely harmful to the faith altogether because people are smart. People are smart. They know when they're being lied to and sort of being given the runaround about something. And so they lose, like you're losing your integrity, they're losing their trust in the faith altogether at the exact same time. So I could do that. I could go down that path. For me, that was, that was what I saw. My only path was I could either just go the rest of my life lying about it, pretending those didn't exist, those weren't there, or I was going to have to quit on this thing altogether. If it's all or nothing, if it's black and white, the Bible is either perfect or it should just be discarded. If that was the relationship I was going to have with it, then I was going to have to walk away altogether. And some people I know did. Maybe you know some folks. For him, it was just too much. And then I discovered the good news. Who wants some good news this morning? You came to church for good news, right? Good news? Good news. The good news is there's an alternative. And there's an alternative given to us by Jesus Christ himself. You ready for it? Let's jump back in. John chapter 5, uh, picking up where we left off. So back to verse 39. This is the second part of what Jesus says. So he says, again, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. You keep thinking it's found in all the, all the letter of the law and all the rules. And if I just do all the do's and I don't do all the don'ts, like, then I'll be good. You won't come to me because you keep going there. But the whole purpose of why these exist was to point, prepare, and ready you for me. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying one of the dangers you can fall into in faith is treating the Bible as an end instead of the means to an end. Friends, Jesus is the end. Jesus is the one that we worship. Jesus is the one whose resurrection launched this whole faith that we belong to. 
And so I'm going to get super practical with you today. You ready? I'm going to get super, super practical. Friends, the first thing you need to do whenever you're reading and studying the Bible, the first test you need to put on the Bible uh, is this. Rule number one, whenever you're reading and studying Scripture, apply the Jesus test. Apply the Jesus test. What that means is when you're reading Scripture, when you're reading different parts of the Bible, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, every which way, when you're reading Scripture and it walks talks and smells like Jesus, it's probably gospel. It's probably gospel. So if there's passages of scripture where you're like, dang, that sounds like something Jesus would say. That sounds like something Jesus would be about. That seems like a cause Jesus would back. We need to treat those passages like gospel. We need to hang our hat on those. We need to build a foundation on those. We need to give our lives to those. In the passages where Jesus doesn't say anything about that topic, doesn't say anything about that subject, or the passages that fly directly in the face and contradict something Jesus said, we need to, at the very least, hold those out for further examination. We need to apply the Jesus test. I'll give you an example. Give me an example. So I'll give you one example uh, in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, uh, there's a, a myriad of passages that talk about the importance of welcoming the stranger, being kind to the foreigner, that if ever you encounter someone in your workplace or in your neighborhood or in the world who is a stranger to you, you ought to go out of your way to be hospitable to them, that that's who we as believers of God, that's who we're called to be. Everyone else can pretend they don't exist. You're not allowed. The moment you sign up to follow God, you have to do that. So Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 and 34, it says this. It says, do not take advantage of the foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them as native-born Israelites, so treat them as your very own kind and love them as you love yourself. Remember, you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt yourself. So what the scripture is saying here in the Old Testament is that one of the values of a follower, of a believer, is to be welcoming to a stranger. Who does that sound like? Go to Matthew 25. Jesus says that one of the ways in which I'm going to grade you at the end of the age is, did you welcome the stranger? Did you care for the person in your life? Maybe you know who that is right now. There's someone in your co-working environment or someone in your neighborhood or someone in your social circle who just, just they just, they're lonely, they're isolated. Jesus says, one of the ways in which I'm going to grade you at the end of time is when you welcomed them, you, you, you welcomed me. So now, all the passages of Scripture that talk about the importance of being hospitable and welcoming to all folks, that's gospel. That's gospel. You can build your life on that. You can, that's one of the foundations we have to cling to and cement as this is permanent, this is who God is, and this is who I'm called to be. But I'll give you an example of the other, okay? I'll give you an example of the other. Because there's other passages of Scripture where Jesus doesn't say anything on that topic or passages that run directly contradiction to something Jesus said. So here's an example in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 19, uh, there's a particular moment in the Old Testament where the author uh, felt that it was godly, that God was telling him that what made you so, uh, righteous, what made you right with God and faithful was... Number one, uh, don't mate different kinds of animals. Anybody got any mutts at home? Anybody? Sinners. All of you. Sinners. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Any gardeners in the house? All of you are in trouble. 
All of you are in trouble. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Anybody rocking like a polyester blend situation today? Great fashion choice. Horrible faith choice. Sinners. All of ya. All of ya. Jesus doesn't say a word about these. And so friends, for me, when you apply the Jesus test, it offers clarity as to what portions of scripture am I going to hang my life on and which am I going to at least, at the very least, hold out for further consideration. John chapter 1 is super clear about this. John chapter 1 is super clear about this, that Jesus was the word of God, and it's capitalized for a reason. Because Jesus is the word above all words. Jesus is the final word on who God is and what God's like. So apply the Jesus test. Apply the Jesus test. And thankfully, Jesus gives us one more. He gives us one more. So he gives us two rules uh, for how we can read and interpret Scripture in a faithful way. Let's go back to verse 38. So if you've got your Bibles, you've got your smart devices, go back to verse 38. Jesus says this also. So he's talking to these religious folks. He's uh, sort of calling them out, trying to reform the way in which they read and interpret the Scriptures. He says this, And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You've never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you don't have his message in your hearts because you don't believe in me, the one he sent to you. It seems one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's calling them out. He's calling the religious folks out for not including their heart in the equation when they read and interpreted the scriptures. They're almost just reading them in a cold and calculated way. No empathy, no humility, just, oh, adulterer, sinner, Oh, sinner, over there. Oh, oh, tax collector, over there. No empathy, no sympathy, no humanness. Their heart wasn't engaged when they were reading and interpreting the scriptures. What's fascinating is nowadays it's actually flip-flopped. Some churches you step into, they don't let you bring your brain with you into the door. So you're not allowed to bring the discoveries of science or the discoveries of biology. You're not allowed to bring any of those. You're just supposed to read passages and just trust on faith that they're true. Just stop there you go, right? And so in so doing, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us the second test. The second thing you want to bring, the second rule you ought to practice whenever you're reading and interpreting the scriptures is not only the Jesus test, but it's the wholeness test. Friends, it's about bringing our whole selves to our relationship with God. What does Jesus say in the great commandment? To love the Lord your God with only your heart, then you're done. All of your heart, soul, mind, strength. It's going to take every single bit of what you got. All the time. All the time. We here at the peak, we, we belong to the, the Methodist tradition. We belong to the Wesleyan tradition. In our tradition, actually, we have a tool for this. We have a tool for this. How we ensure that we're reading the Bible as faithfully and as accurately as possible is we use something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Looks like this. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. So... What we do when we read and study scripture is we read and study scripture through the lenses of reason. So we pay attention when experts in science and epidemiology and all the other fields out there, when they're improving our information and our knowledge about things, we use that when we're reading the scriptures. I always like to say uh, it's not faith versus science for us. Faith and science dance together here at our church. Okay? So we read through the lens of reason 
tradition, so tradition is just fancy talk for you and I didn't start following, no one, we didn't just start following Jesus four minutes ago, like people have been following Jesus for thousands of years, and there's a lot of people who are a lot closer to Jesus than I was, know a lot more about Jesus than I do, and we ought to heed and pay attention to the wisdom and the, the, the insight and the knowledge of our ancestors, the people who've gone before us, the theologians, the scholars, the teachers, who can enrich our understanding of who this Jesus is. And then thirdly and finally, it's our experience. Your experience matters. The experience of other people it matters. you got to bring all that to the table. Here's why. You ready? Here's why. I'll give you one example. If you go to Matthew chapter 15, there's a rather startling passage where it seems like Jesus calls a woman a dog. Go ahead and you can put it on the screen. So what's just happened, you can go ahead and put it on the screen, Carrie. What just happened is Jesus is traveling about. A woman approaches him. She has a really sick daughter, and she's looking to Jesus to help. Jesus, we, I need you to heal her. I need you to take care of her. Can you please show me some compassion? Can you please show me some mercy? Now, this woman doesn't belong to Israel. She doesn't belong to the same tribe as Jesus. And so Jesus' reaction, his response to her is this. He responds, it isn't right to take food from the children, the children of Israel, and throw it to the dogs. Now, does that sound like something Jesus would say? Does that align with your experience with Jesus? Has Jesus treated you that way? Have you ever went to Jesus searching for help, searching for something, and Jesus called you a dog, treated you as trash, threw you away? Something doesn't line up. And so... Now, when you activate the rest of your being, the rest of yourself, reason, tradition, experience, what happens is you get to see what's actually going on here. So, what's going on here is this woman, this is really important to know, this woman that approaches Jesus, she's actually from a land called Sidon. Sidon, that's actually a, it's from the region of Canaan. And the Bible has a lot of things to say about people from Sidon. Check this out. So in the Old Testament, there's a whole litany of things said about Sidonians. And as you can see, they're all bad. So Judges chapter 10, the whole story starts when Sidonians conquered and oppressed the Israelites. So they started off on the wrong foot. They started off as enemies. They started off as one conquering the other. Then, 1 Corinthians, Solomon marries a Sidonian woman who then leads them into idolatry and they worship a bunch of pagan gods and idols. So leads them off track. Isaiah chapter 23, Isaiah predicts terrible things for Sidon. Jeremiah uh, chapter 25 predicts a doomsday for Sidon. Ezekiel, he really doesn't like them. In chapters 27, 28, and 32, he says Sidon is a complete disgrace, complete evil, complete abomination in the eyes of God. And so when Jesus is approached by a woman from Sidon, Jesus knows that the audience around him is thinking this. They're all going, does this woman think she is? Ooh, I don't know what you're doing over here. <laughs> Jesus is going to let you have it. Oh, he's going to let you have it. Tell her, Jesus. Tell her, Jesus, we don't do nothing with them. They trash. Like, they don't get nothing from us. They don't get nothing from you. Tell them, Jesus. And so Jesus says, yep, it isn't right to take food from children. 
and throw it to the dogs. Almost as a way of sort of setting them up for what happens next. Because what happens next is this. Jesus turns the tables, flips it upside down, says, dear woman, your faith is so great, and your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. In a moment, Jesus did two things. He took someone who was an outsider, who was considered unclean, who was considered unworthy, who was considered undeserving of anything God had to give to them, and said, this is the person whose faith you ought to be emulating. It's her faith right now who is great, and at the exact same time caused everybody in attendance to completely second guess and completely reevaluate what they understood about God's attitude and posture towards outsiders in an instant. Now, does that sound like something Jesus would do? Yeah. Yeah. All the time, Jesus is confronting the insiders of their own hypocrisy and running after the outsiders to lavish them in love and compassion. All the time. And you don't get any of that if you only come to the Bible with one small sliver of yourself. It's all close here. All close here. Listen, many of you came to worship today or you're tuning in to worship today online and your faith is kind of in this weird spot. It feels stagnant right now. It feels kind of like you're drifting. You don't feel like you're anchored anywhere. Worship's been hard because you were here and then you're not. Then you feel like some of you feel comfortable being here. Some of you are tuning in strictly online. So that's kind of been a struggle. Some of you are in small groups. You're not in a small group yet. And it's been hard to sort of get your schedules aligned. So that, that was always a place where you felt grounded. You felt connected to God and to one another. But now that's kind of like a little bit of hiatus. However, I'm willing to bet that another reason so many of us feel anchorless right now when it comes to our faith and our spirituality is because of our relationship or lack thereof with this book. With this book. Now, hear me, hear me. Zero judgment. Zero judgment. Some of you, you don't have a strong relationship with the Bible because some of it's so freaking hard to understand. Right? You picked it up and you're like, here we go, I'm gonna read the Bible. Mm, it's gonna be awesome. And then you're one chapter in, there's 17 names you don't understand, and you're like, I tried. I tried. That's all. Or maybe for you, uh, you're someone who you are very, very well acquainted with all of those passages that I listed earlier. Maybe those passages have been used against you and harmed you in a really, really traumatic way. I don't know where each and every one of you are in your relationship with the Bible, but I want to help. We, here at The Peak, we want to help. And so here's what we got for you as you start 2022. The first way in which we're going to try to help is uh, make you aware, actually, of a resource that's already available to you. So we published a class here at our church that we started teaching probably five or so years ago called How to Read the Bible. It's exactly what it sounds like, How to Read the Bible. Right now, it's actually available on YouTube, so you can find it. You can find it. It's six sessions. They're 20 minutes each, so you can rip through it on your lunch break if you'd like, and it's got a sort of application guide that you can use as, with individuals or as a small group. And the whole design of this course is to teach you how to read 
the Bible, to give you tools, to give you things that you can actually take with you when you engage it so you don't feel so lost all the time. Okay? So make use of that. Another tool uh, that we're making available to you that we're starting tomorrow, we're launching tomorrow. Uh, it's here at the peak, we're launching something called the Bible Year. The Bible Year. Uh, we, uh, you can join me. Uh, I'm going to be reading the Bible every day for the entire year this year. And you can join along. If you've ever wanted to read the whole Bible all the way through, or maybe, maybe like, that's 100% is not your goal. You just want to read the Bible more often than you currently are. That's fine. If you go to Facebook, you can find this group. Uh, this is a group underneath our Peak Church page called the Bible Year. And you can join it. And we have a, we're following along with the devotional. The devotional is called the Bible Year. And it has short, concise sort of selections where if you read just for like 10 or 11 minutes a day, you'll read the entire Bible in a year. That's like a, let's, you can give up a portion of your social media time or your Netflix time for that, okay? 10 or 11 minutes, right? These are just a couple. But my encouragement to you is this. As your pastor, my encouragement to you is to just have a relationship with this book, okay? If you don't have one, start one. If you haven't had one in a while, it's been on hiatus for a while, that's fine. Now it's time to re-engage. Now it's time to re-engage. Because, friends, while this book is not God, it contains countless stories of people who have walked closest with God. And I don't know about you, but I need those folks in my life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much uh, for this day, and uh, God, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. Jesus, we thank you that at several moments throughout the course of history, uh, you tapped different people on the shoulder and said, hey, write that down. <laughs> write that down. I want other people to know about this. I want, to know, I want other people to hear about what transpired today. And Jesus, we're so thankful that they did. Because without these stories, without these characters, without their letters, without their wisdom, without their teaching, we wouldn't know what you're like. We wouldn't know what your heart is like. We wouldn't know what type of life you're calling us to. And so, Jesus, we pray that wherever we are in our faith journeys today, wherever we are in our relationships with you and with the Bible, I pray that you will just give us a place to start. Maybe for us it is kind of educational. We need to learn more. We need to sort of uh, re-engage our brains some more and learn more, uh, get some more information about what this book is and how to navigate it well. Or maybe we just need to get back into the discipline of reading it and studying it and finding out what parts of it are ours to apply each day. Jesus, wherever we are in our journeys, we commit ourselves to you this day. Show us the way. Show us the path. Because at the end of the day, all of us are here today because we want to get closer to you. And so we ask this and we pray for this in the name of Jesus. Let everybody say, amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.